Welcome to the Conservation Queens podcast. We are five girls who love the earth and have a passion for living a more eco-friendly life. We are Real Life Zoo employees, and as always, nothing that we say reflects our organizations and all thoughts and opinions are our own. Please keep in mind that we try to keep our podcast PG-13, so if you have younger listeners, you may want to review the content beforehand. I'm Katie. I'm Kenzie. And I'm Emily B. And with that, let's talk about stuff. Uh, so, happy birthday, Kenzie! Happy birthday, Kenzie! Happy birthday, Kenzie! Yeah. Happy birthday, Kenzie! Adventure. We missed so it. Uh, Kenzie's birthday was just a few days ago on Tuesday. Ooh. So happy birthday, Kenzie! We love yeah. you. I'm now um, at the end of my mid twenties. I'm over wow. the hill, y'all. <laughs> um, if you didn't see Kenzie's uh, birthday post on our Instagram, sorry, excuse me, goodness. <laughs> Ooh. Noise. Don't mind me. Um, but if you haven't seen uh, Kenzie's birthday post on our Instagram, go check it out. Give her some love because honestly, she's probably the best queen out of all of us. Um, we love you, Kenzie. Thank you. I love y'all. Um, yeah. And then other fan shout outs. Thank you to Katie's mom, Katie's brother, and David, <laughs> uh, who became patrons last week Woo! or two weeks ago. Thanks, uh, thank you. Love you. Y'all rock. You're the best. You are starting number our, one fans. Yes, you're starting our little fund of being real life podcasters, and we appreciate you so much for it. Um, other listeners, if you would like to join our Patreon, please be our guest. Um, you can find us at Conservation Queens Podcast. There you um, go. And then, yeah, Katie, up to you. I have a fun conservation update that I saw today. Um, and it is that Bandicoots, which, by the way, it's not just a character in a video game. Bandicoots are, in fact, a real animal. I feel like some people don't know that they are. Um, a lot tinier than Crash Bandicoot, I would also say, and look nothing like him. Um, but Bandicoots have been reintroduced to Sturt National Park in Australia, um, where they were locally extinct for more than a century. Um, in New South Wales in general. Uh, they went extinct due to predation by feral cats and foxes, um, which, <laughs> invasive. Um, but this reintroduction was done through the Wild Deserts Conservation Project. Um, and last year, they also introduced bilbies and mulgaras into the national park too, where they oh, were wow. formerly native. So that's pretty great. Also, look, just look up a picture of a bandicoot. They're super cute little guys. They're very cute. So are Bilbies and Mulgaras as well. Um, instead of the Easter Bunny, this is also a fun fact for you, Australians have the Easter Bilby. That's amazing. Because if you look up a picture of it, they have really big ears like a rabbit, but they're not a rabbit. Oh my god, that is adorable. It Aren't like they a so cute? Yeah, they do look a lot like chinchilla. Oh, that's, yeah, you're right. And then Mulgaras are pretty much also like a small rodent-like creature as well they're cute they're really cute they got big eyes i can get down with all these little rodents yeah so welcome back little rodents yay i don't know if they're exactly rodents but whatever welcome back i'm glad you're here (laughs) all right um abby is enjoying a small staycation this week so i'm going to be taking over zoo news for her um, just a couple of fun little stories I found. Um, the San Antonio Zoo, I know, I think we talked about them quite a bit in the like peak COVID times when everything was closed. 
Mm. Um, they actually recently surprised all of their full-time employees by paying them back lost wages from COVID-related losses. Amazing. Oh, what? That's Isn't crazy. That crazy? San Antonio is a great zoo. That's actually the zoo that got me into conservation and zoo work. I volunteered there when I was in high school. So go San Antonio. Yeah. Amazing. So sweet. I mean, could you imagine showing up to work and being like, "Um, here's all the money that you should have made for the several months we were closed. Um, And then another story I found, the Lehigh Valley Zoo. Uh, Welcome to baby kangaroo. A little Joey. We love that. Um, and then lastly, uh, Wild Florida, which is not too far from us, um, had two albino alligators born. Wow. They're, they're very not, cute. I saw they're cute not ATA, are they? They're not, but they had little baby albino alligators, and they're very cute. <laughs> and I so just feel get, like the world needs to So they to get know. a pass. <laughs> they get a pass Where, because they had cute baby alligators. That's interesting that they they're had two cute. albino ones. I know. Well, that's what they said. They were like, we had two. That's kind of crazy. Oh, I just, yeah, I'm looking at the headline now. A pair of rare albino alligators hatched in Florida. Yeah. They are true. really cute. All right. Fine. I know. Adorable. Um, oh, my gosh. Their parents are named Snowflake and Blizzard. <laughs> Stop. Wait, are their parents also albino? Yes. yes. Uh, that makes more sense. I love it. Well, what if they name them like Flurry and like I don't know. I have so many ideas. That's adorable. There, I'm sure they'll be named some snow-related name. Adorable. Uh, Okay, and then on to Beluga News, the best news. Um, I only have one thing this week. Um, So there is a Beluga communication scientist. She studies Beluga acoustics. Her name is Dr. Valeria Vergara. She uh, is associated with OceanWise Conservation Association, and I stumbled across this article, um, an interview of hers, talking about beluga whale communications, and she mentioned that baby belugas babble talk. Basically, like, they listen to their parents and all the belugas around them making all of these different noises, and so they just kind of, like, they, babble back oh my God. they hear. Stop. Is that not the key? Baby talk. They have, they have their own baby talk. Love they're like i'm just gonna make noises they're not actually anything meaningful yet but i mean that's if that's not the cutest thing I don't and then know the other belugas are probably like wow so great yep you're, they're like wow, you're, doing you're doing great, great little one. <laughs> oh, oh, wow amazing um so with that we are gonna jump right into this week's episode in celebration of kenzie's birthday she has given us our topic which is sustainable agriculture. <laughs> which when is bats. Plant- Wait, what? <laughs> it's not it's not I, bats. <laughs> surprisingly, no, but you know what? Bats can contribute to sustainable agriculture <laughs> as pollinators with several plant species. There you go. Agave. <laughs> we love it. Um, okay, so we're just gonna get right into it. Um and So when you think of sustainable agriculture, there's a million different definitions, but I pulled the definition straight from the USDA's website. Sustainable agriculture was defined in Congress, um, and the definition is as follows. The term sustainable agriculture means an integrated system of plant and animal production practices having a site-specific application that will, over the long term, satisfy human food and fiber needs, enhance environmental quality and the natural resource base upon which the agricultural economy depends, make the most efficient use of non-renewable resources and on-farm resources, and integrate where appropriate natural biological cycles and controls, sustain the economic viability of farm operations, 
and enhance the quality of life for farmers and society as a whole. So that was a whole lot of words, um, basically saying that sustainable agriculture looks at a number of factors to create the best outcome, both for people and the planet. We love that. Okay. Do you sum that up better than Congress? You know, sometimes they need to use a lot of words to make themselves sound smart. No. This is very true. But that's okay. We can sum it up in, you know, two sentences or less. So to kind of go into what Emily just said, the basis of all those things are we're trying to build and maintain healthy soil, manage water wisely, minimize pollution, whether it's air pollution, water pollution, or climate pollution, and promote biodiversity. Um, those are more of the environmental-like focuses when it comes to sustainable agriculture. Um, we will touch on the people portion or like the societal benefits, farmer benefits in a little bit. Um, but the methods that are involved in all those practices or all those kind of um, goals that I just mentioned, um, so maintaining and uh, building healthy soil would go in hand in, with rotating crops and embracing diversity. Um, so not just planting maybe one kind of plant um, over and over and over again, but planting a variety of crops can help uh, make the soil healthier and it improves pest control. Um, and yeah, it's just a lot better than... Kenzie, did you have yeah. something against corn? Do I remember that? Or no, was that, was, some... that was Emily. I mean, I also have a bone to pick with, with corn, but we're going to get into detail with that. Not oh, okay. Corn as, as a vegetable staple, but... Okay, we'll, we'll gotcha. Later. I didn't know where that came into play. Yeah, it, I mean, it mostly comes in later, but it does come in with this... Um, most farmers who grow corn uh, you are trying to avoid a monoculture is what it's called when you yeah. only have one plant the whole area um, and like Katie said you want to rotate these crops so one year you grow corn one year you grow soybeans one year you grow insert another agricultural crop here um, and it diversifies what you grow so if your corn has a bad year your soybean might have a better year the next year and you're not going to have two bad years in a row um, and it's going to restore the nutrients in the soil which is going to help all of your crops yeah. So then when you're rotating, um, you don't want to actually leave the area bare. Um, I didn't know this, actually, that you would plant cover crops, um, which are like clover or hairy vetch. Um, they're planted during off-season times when soils might otherwise be left bare. Um, and they actually protect and build the soil health by preventing erosion. They replenish soil nutrients and they keep weeds in check, which um, in this off-season for this area of the field... Um, reduces the need for herbicides in that area later on when you're going to replant, which is great. Why why use herbicides when you can just plant more plants? Just plant all the plants. But plant different plants. <laughs> plant all the plants, but different plants. But not those plants. <laughs> don't plant too many plants on one plot of land. You don't want to take up too much space with all your plants. Yeah, we'll get into that too. Um <laughs> Reducing or eliminating tillage is another sustainable practice, um, which is that refers to traditional plowing is also known as tillage, um, but it prepares the fields for planting and prevents weed problems, but it can also uh, cause a lot of soil loss. Um, there are other methods which are like either reducing the amount of tillage you have to do or no tillage at all. It's such a funny word. Is that like just me? Tillage. Tillage. It's cracking it's like me up. Tillage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're tillaging the field. Literally, I guess. Anyways. 
Um, but it involves inserting seeds directly into undisturbed soil is one of those methods, which can help reduce erosion and improve soil health. Um, is that like a s machine that does that? That like just shoots the seeds? It must <laughs> be. I mean, not to uh, to my own Midwestern horn here, but I'm sure John Deere makes a tractor for everything. So this is true. Just I'm like imagining it and it's just like. A very funny, almost Nerf gun-looking thing. He just Farmer, shoots the seeds. Farmers just going around with a Nerf gun filled with seeds. Can you tell that agriculture is not my... <laughs> planting time, y'all! Um, oh, another big thing uh, as far as using sustainable methods is applying integrated pest management, um, which can use like mechanical or biological control of pests. Rather than using pesticides, um, you can use classic example, a, a lot of insects, um, insecticides, or no, that's not what they're called. That's something that kills insects, Parasitic, right? uh, you want like parasitic wasps. There you go. Parasitic wasps, ladybugs, lots of other bugs, aphids. No. No, no like you don't want, I meant that they kill the aphids. I didn't. Yes. <laughs> they kill the aphids, that's what I meant. <laughs> Um, yeah, so it just basically to limit the amount of chemical pesticides that you're using. Um, I love this one, integrating livestock and crops. Um, so a lot of industrial agriculture methods tend to keep plant and animal products separate from one another, um, with animals living far off, you know, from where the crops are growing, um, but a lot of evidence has been showing that um, integrating your crop and animal products can be um, really efficient and profitable. Um, so, like, what creates manure? Oh, you guessed it. Them cows. Um, so maybe not keeping them as far away, because obviously you can't have cows in the same area as the plants you're growing because they would eat all the plants. Um, but uh, the only example I can really think of for this is, like, aquaponics. Right? Like, that yeah, would be an yeah. example of a crops Hydroponics, and yeah. livestock. Because yeah, aquaponics to... is like recycling or getting the nutrients from the fish and they poop in the water um, and recycling that into the plants. And they the use plants those nutrients. The fish oxygen. There you go. It's a win-win system. Do you guys know any like land, livestock, and crop integration examples? Um, not on a large scale, but when I worked, um, at a place in Texas, we had a big garden. Um, and what we would do is we would release all of the chickens into the garden during the day. Mm. Um, so they would eat, oh, they would the eat pests. all the bugs. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. then, um, put them away at night and they're good to go. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to say, um, I think we've discussed it in a previous episode but in addition to leaving fertilizer uh, cattle especially on open range places can help replace the biological niches that were filled by buffaloes back then that are no longer available to Bam. the very ecosystem i love that mm -hmm. oh, oh sorry go ahead no i was just gonna say that's great <laughs> <laughs> um i also just remembered a video that i saw when i was back in school and we were talking about, um, what was it, prairie management or field management and crop incorporation. And I'm trying to look it up now, but it was something that was really neat where they did almost a spiral. 
and the spiral inside was native wild grasses and wildflowers and then outside that spiral was the crop that they were growing and it actually produced really good results um, in terms of crop yield nice yeah but again i'm trying to find it so if anyone knows what i'm talking about hit me up <laughs> um, another method for sustainable practices is adopting agroforestry practices which is mixing trees or shrubs into um, your farmland can actually provide shade and shelter to protect plants, animals, and water resources, um, while also potentially offering additional income. Um, there's a little something that's interesting about this. Um, when I was in Australia, I actually <laughs> uh, did a lot of uh, my animal behavior class actually took place on a farm. Uh, it was kind of like a practice farm for also like the vet students that were at this college. Um, but one of the studies that we looked into was about cattle and their, um, basically their needs. So like, obviously you're thinking food, water, like, you know, shelter, those kinds of things. So a barn for them to go into at night. Um, but they actually did like a choice-based research study where they were trying to figure out what is like the most important need for cattle that they will forego like other needs for. Um, and they actually found that cattle prioritize shade over like everything else. So they had like a one field of cattle that was like a lot of trees. And then there was another field that had like one tree, like of miles away from where the barn was. And they let the cattle out and they found that those cattles would walk the miles and miles and miles just to get under that one tree for the shade. Um, Dang. As opposed to like going to like their water trough or going to get food or hay or what have you. Um, so it's actually interesting to, I mean, by mixing trees and shrubs into the farmland, you're, you really are benefiting the animals in a lot of ways. Because that offers, I mean, I want to say like a more natural environment. Um, I feel like we could also have a whole episode on just animal agriculture in general. I feel like this one's going to focus a little more on plants. Um but yeah, I guess more natural. <laughs> but anyways, um, and the other kind of last bit of this, uh, as far as how to implement sustainability into agriculture is managing the whole system and landscape. Um, so they treat uncultivated or less intensely cultivated areas um, as integral to the farm. Um, so like if there was a prairie strip next to your farm, you are respecting and taking care of that area as much as you are for the farmland itself um, because it plays a role in controlling erosion. Um, some areas bordering farms reduce nutrient runoff. They support pollinators um, and other biodiversity. So it's extremely important to not only um, look after your farmland, but also the land surrounding it so that it can continue to be healthy and sustainable for many years to come. Um, but the big picture for all those practices that I just mentioned is that they involve less pesticides, so less pollution. Um, they help conserve water um, and they take up less space. Um, but that really, the take up less space um, goes more with like hydroponic farming and aquaponic farming because they do like horizontal farming instead of vertical, or wait, vertical, vertical instead of horizontal. There you go. Um and just taking up less space in general, which means there's more space for 
um, natural biodiversity to take place. Um, so we're not using as much of our natural resources, which is awesome. It also uses a lot less water, right? Yes. Yes. It, it's, it uses water much more efficiently. There you go. So All right. with that being oh said, my God. sorry guys, my cat literally just ran in with her um, little fluffy bird <laughs> on, its, on its little toy. Hi, baby. <laughs> She's like, yes, mother, you play with me now. You're not doing anything, right? Not, nothing important. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Katie. Oh, I was done. You're good. Oh, no. I, I just thought that was an important update for everyone. No, it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And with that we are ready to take on the monster of the agricultural business. Dun, dun, dun. It's GMOs. All right. Let me get my farmer cap on right here. A oh, big farmer. straw hat. Yeah. Uh, farmer Kinsey's about to make an appearance. All right. Welcome kids. So what is a GMO? That's a pretty big buzzword that's going around right now. If you are involved in any kind of environmental talk, we're talking about sustainable agriculture. Uh, GMOs get kind of a weird rep, but first we're going to dive into what exactly is a GMO. So GMO stands for genetically modified organism. Now the base definition of this can be defined as organisms whose genetic material or DNA is altered via unnatural processes via selective breeding or recombination. Now what people I think fail to forget sometimes is that when we hear the word GMO, we think of something that's grown in a lab. We think of Jurassic Park, right? We're literally engineering dinosaurs. Um, but GMO actually has much more simpler means and methods, and we've been doing it for about 32,000 years. So according to this article from Harvard, uh, humans have been altering the genetic makeup of organisms since, again, roughly 32,000 years ago. And this started when wild wolves actually began to join or follow bands of humans as scavengers. Over time, the wolves were incorporated into human life and were domesticated. And eventually they were selectively bred for certain desirable traits like docility and ability to communicate and work well with humans. And, and thus now, we have dogs. We have doggies. And now I have a demon golden retriever. Thanks. Yes. <laughs> From the mighty wolf to Ellie. To Ellie. <laughs> it's a long line, but there you go. So, um, and then yeah, cats yeah. were just like, we'll do this ourselves. Yeah, they literally domesticated us is what happened. <laughs> it worked. It did. I'm not mad about it. All right. So getting back to plants and GMOs. Um, so there are many reasons that we as scientists want to use GMOs and why it's beneficial to use GMOs um, when it comes to agricultural crops. So the base reason that any farmer would like to use a genetically modified version of a crop is because these plants, for example, corn, soybeans, whatever, um, have been modified in order to make them more resistant to pests, more resistant to diseases, or to produce more of it. A Basically, you're going to modify this corn so it grows taller, grows faster, grows bigger, produces more fruit, etc. Um, and those are all beneficial to these people who are producing these um, plants, vegetables, what's the word? Crops. I don't know. I forgot. The food. I forgot everything I've ever been told. It's fine. So let's talk about corn, kids. Um, as someone who grew up in the Midwest and was literally surrounded by corn at every turn, um, I tend to think I know just a little bit about it. But 
Um, corn used to be, before corn became the corn you know today, um, corn used to be a crop called maize. Um, it was pretty popular in like Mexico and um, the Southeast or the Southern United States even. Um, but these people that had maize, um, they would use it, basically grind it down to make a flour. Um, and it was basically just a food product for them. Um, but maize was pretty bad at being a agricultural crop. Um, maize was pretty susceptible to disease. It was not a very hardy crop. Um, it wouldn't produce a lot versus the amount of effort you would put into raising it. Um, so these lovely indigenous farmers who farmed maize said, hmm, I wonder if I cross these two maize plants who are doing really well together, if their babies will also do really well. And surprise, surprise, they did. Um, so they bred this maize to become closer to what we know as corn today, um, a much hardier crop, um, doing a little bit better. And then the Americans got a hold of corn and they said, wow, you know what we're going to do? Use this for everything. Um, much like Americans do with every natural resource they find. <sighs> Big sigh. Um, but corn, you can find it everywhere. If there is a product in your home, be it a food product or a household product, chances are corn probably helped to make it in some way. Um, things like high fructose corn syrup, um, the food that your livestock eats that becomes the meat you buy at the store, um, cornmeal, corn flour, cornstarch, vitamin C and citric acid, all these things come from corn. You can use corn literally a billion ways. Um, so it's a very uh, profitable crop in the United States because everybody wants it, right? So we want our crops to be successful. So enter the rise of biotechnology, um, especially in the early 2000s. <clears throat> Excuse me. Scientists began to learn how to genetically modify organisms at the molecular level um, to either insert traits that we do like um, or to get rid of traits that we don't like. Um, the most well-known example of these is called BT corn. Um, there are many, many, many um, scientific articles that have been written about BT corn. Um, and most of the information that I'm going to talk about today has come from a few sources um, including the University of Kentucky College of Agriculture, as well as the National Institute of Health. So that's um, where all this information is coming from. But BT corn is corn that has been modified to contain a part, uh, had its DNA modified to contain a part of a bacteria's DNA um, that kills the larval stage in pests. So basically a pest eats this corn and the pest dies because the corn contains something that the pest did not like. Um, and this is highly effective at controlling caterpillars, um, lepidoptera larvae, technically. So that's a whole um, genus of different animals, including, um, I think it's like flies and butterflies are lepidoptera. Um, but basically, these larvae, they are hugely destructive to big crops, especially the European corn borer is one of these insects. And it will destroy corn like no other. Um, it's a very fast spreading pest. Um, and when you have BT corn, now the corn is resistant to this. Um, and what's nice about this is the protein that they have inserted into this corn is very selective. It does not harm um, beneficial insects or other insects. Um, and it does not harm people at all. Um, it's not even thinking about you. It's only thinking about getting rid of that fly or that European corn borer that bit into it. So that's probably the most common example um, in the United States. Um, now, the big, I guess, quote, quote, controversy with GMOs is, are they safe? <laughs> <laughs> yes, they're safe. Um, and here's a million reasons why. Um, GMOs, 
there aren't very many that are actually um, used in the United States. And I think Kenzie talks about that a little bit later. Um, but they have to endure so much testing because of the nature of creating them. Um, so they have to test, be tested by three different agencies in the United States, including the USDA, the FDA, and the EPA. Um, so they've endured a lot of testing to make sure that they are safe, make sure that they are, you know, nutritionally identical to non-GMO um, of whatever the plant is. And eating a GMO cannot change anything in your body. Um, Kenzie's got a nice little note here. I do. Yeah, GMOs do not change your DNA. They do not adversely affect your health or pose threats to fertility. And after concerns were first raised via what's known as the uh, IRT or the Institute for Responsible Technology um, over a genetically engineered potato and the supposed side effects on the rats that it was tested on, um, several scientists, I think Harvard did an excellent article on it, actually tested this theory. And after they fed the rats over a series of weeks, uh, they looked at the rats inside and they found absolutely no effect whatsoever on their internal organs. There was no noted behavior changes. Um, so here, here's, here's a hot take from Farmer Kennedy. <laughs> uh, people who are hardcore anti-GMO kind of give off the same vibes as anti-vax people. Mm, mm, it's true. Um, I read a lovely article by the National Institute of Health, um, and they literally said verbatim, people, and they listed out every concern of people who are scared of GMOs. And the number one concern is, you know, they aren't safe. And the people that say that they aren't safe are literally, this has been backed up by studies, less educated. Um, they just don't know. And so you fear what you don't know, right? That's kind of basic human nature. So people don't know science, don't understand science. They are more likely to fear things created by science. So but that's why we're here to teach you about science and how it's great. Yeah. Um, there are many environmental benefits of using genetically modified um, organisms. Again, this is also from uh, the same article by the National Institute of Health. Um, and they basically said, if you use GMOs, um, you're already reducing your use of pesticides. Um, and so for all you crazy people out there, that means less chemicals, less chemicals sprayed on your food. The actual stuff that can hurt you. you yes, know? exactly. Um, because these pests are, you know, being deterred by the crop itself. So you don't have to spray it with chemicals to deter the pests. Um, it increases the amount of beneficial insects, um, because they're not competing with the pests. Um, and then GMOs actually have helped revive some industries, um, hit very hard by disease. So they are economically, um, beneficial. Uh, some examples given were papayas that were destroyed in Hawaii from a rot disease were able to come back. Um, with a genetically modified papaya that was resistant to said disease. And uh, similar with uh, cotton plants in Alabama that were being basically infested by another type of borer insect. Um, and they were able to bring it back with a genetically modified version of that cotton. So good stuff. Nice. Um, now, there are some cons. I will say one that I could find um, to these genetically modified organisms is often the groups that are have the funding to create these genetically modified organisms are big corporations. These are not, you know, your mom and pop farmer. These are big corporations. Um, think Bayer, Monsanto, et cetera, um, Roundup. 
these companies have the money to pour into research and to pour into creating these genetically modified organisms. And if one company can say, I have corn that's better than all the other corn that you could possibly purchase as seeds, people are going to buy that corn, right? Because they want to make the most money off of it. And now you have a monopoly. Um, so economically, you could have some struggles there. Um, however, um, the big example that was cited in the article was uh, soybean created by Roundup, um, which you may have heard of Roundup before if you've ever bought Weed Killer or um, Bug Spray. Um, but they, the article basically said the Roundup soybeans that, you know, yes, they have a monopoly on them, but these soybeans are so incredibly important for rotating crops, as we mentioned before, and preventing soil erosion. So it's really a lot of pro-con here. Um, and then very fun little surprise also mentioned in the same article. Um, I'm just going to read this verbatim because I don't want to mess it up. Surprise benefits have also occurred. According to a recent International Council for Science review of genetically modified crops, disease-resistant corn crops may have lower levels of mycotoxins, potentially carcinogenic comp compounds to humans. They result from fungal activity in insect-infected corn crops. With fewer insect holes in plant tissue, associated fungi are not able to invade and produce toxins. So again, summing that all up, the plants are resistant to the bugs. The bugs don't eat the plants. Now there's no holes in the plants. We can't get fungus in the plants, and fungus can cause cancer. So <laughs> GMOs equals less cancer. Wow. Again, this is from an article from the National Institute of Health, and I trust them with my life. There you go. <sighs> I, I, I follow them. I think that's a pretty reputable source. Yes. Um, all right, Farmer Kenzie, let's hear it. All right, let me pull on my britches here and get my little overalls. Get your overalls, yeah. Get, get my pitchfork. Get my hoe. <laughs> I, I hate what I've become, but I also love it. All right, so when we have been talking about sustainable agriculture, we've covered GMOs. Now let's talk about how you can help support sustainable agriculture and some of the um, nuances that is associated with it. So I find personally that buying locally raised produce and meat is the best and one of the easier ways. When you buy local and you buy in-season produce, that's a big one because when you buy in-season produce, mm -hmm. uh, you actually help to reduce your carbon footprint because most out of season produce that you see in big chain grocery stores are usually shipped from overseas um, or shipped from out of state at the very least. Uh, so again, you help reduce carbon emissions related transport. And when you buy local, you support local. So supporting local farmers and their families, that's a really big one right there. Um, I realize this can be a little difficult, though, in terms of what access you have to yeah. said local food groups, um, food groups, local, local foods, local foods. There we go. Farmers <laughs> so, markets. Basically. Farmers markets. Yeah, that's not available in every portion of the city or is, it's not as accessible, especially to people who live in lower income areas. Um, maybe they don't have transportation to get to those places, et cetera. Uh, you guys have probably heard of food deserts. That's a really big issue when it comes to sustainable agriculture and ethical consumption. Um, and that's not something that needs to be blamed on those people, more so on the people who are responsible for making that accessible. Uh, for me personally, again, eating sustainably does not necessarily equal eating less meat. It can help to a degree. Um, but again, so much as purchasing foods that are responsibly sourced. Um, 
I know veganism and vegetarianism has been on the rise. If you are full vegan, props to you. That takes a lot of discipline that I myself personally do not have. <laughs> um, but some points that have been raised in concern. As the demand for plant-based meats and plant-based diets rise, um, this can lead sometimes to the displacement of indigenous people for the raising of cash crops. So think of things like soy, quinoa, kale, etc. Um, and also this isn't something just within this particular realm, but all across agriculture, uh, the mistreatment of migrant agriculture workers, especially those who are undocumented, um, that is a really big topic that I personally feel like doesn't get enough attention when we talk about ethical food consumption. Mm -hmm. Again, this is as much a human issue as it is an environment issue. Um, migrant workers, especially if they are undocumented, do not have access to the same protections as agriculture workers who are. Um, or are from or are citizens from those areas, and just because they are undocumented, <clears throat> does not give people the right to treat them as less than human. Um, as someone who currently works as a pseudo farmer, I'd say I work in a greenhouse, so I don't necessarily work fields. It is a very labor-intensive job, and people who work in those fields, I think, are need to be treated with uh, more respect and more dignity. Uh, good farming is an integrated system with many moving parts and nuances, and there is a deficit um, in knowledge of farming practices, especially as there are fewer and fewer farmers. Farmers are aging out, and agriculture land is going more and more to development, uh, especially as suburbs and cities expand. Um, also, I another like I didn't like even just in doing my section, I really didn't know that much about agricultural practices. Um, the only knowledge I actually have is of hydroponic facilities, um, this specifically the one that my boyfriend worked at for a really long time. Uh, like, I know if you go into Publix right now, you can actually get there. They grew, like, lettuce and a lot of those sorts of things there. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, and it, it's really cool, like, to, but also, you know, it's important to also know that there are still farm farms out there <laughs> that are... Um, you know, facing a lot of other issues, especially like the ones that you just mentioned. Um, and then the one that Emily mentioned as far as um, possible monopoly from GMOs, but I don't know. I guess I'm just having an aha moment over here. <laughs> no, no. Of like, I, where does your food come from, Katie? No, I mean, um, it's something that I feel like a lot of us, myself included, don't think about. I've become more aware because of the job I've taken within the past year. But even as someone who minored in international agriculture, natural resources, and took classes that concern sustainable agriculture, um, you know, that wasn't my biggest focus. So this past year, I've learned a lot, but I am by no means an expert. So listeners, take this with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, oh, and one last thing I really, really want to address that just burns my chaps. Hot take farmer. <laughs> farmer hot take here. Um, I really, really, personally, I hate the whole organic thing. Uh, because if you look at organic, when you break it down, it literally means carbon-based. Do you know how many things are carbon-based? So when I see things in the grocery store that's like organic, I'm like, yeah, it is. It's carbon-based. Of course it's organic. Um, and also, here in the U.S., we only have like 10 GMO crops being produced. Now, since 2015, 26 crops have been approved for market consumption. 
Um, but chances are when you buy produce, it's probably not GMO. <laughs> well, isn't that though, like when it comes to organic labeling, if it's truly organic labeling, more like involving production without the use of chemical fertilizers, pesticides, or other things like that? Yeah, that's what, if it's truly organic if it's truly organic that's what it means and yes that is stuff that you do want um but when i generally see organically marked products i'm always a little bit weary of if it's just another greenwashing scam yes which again is why you want to do your research kids i've and read <laughs> i'm i'm so i'm coming from like a background and a family that bought all organic when i was growing up and i still buy like certain products that are organic Mm -hmm. Um, but I've learned that there are some products that it's totally like unnecessary to buy organic or to look for like, um, specifically products that have an outer covering that you're going to take off anyway. Yes. <laughs> um, like, you know, I don't know, bananas, Banana. oranges, like those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's something I like, didn't, you know, know growing up, but. Um, definitely looking more into what exactly organic means when you're looking for those sorts of products, because I think that for certain things, it's really important not to get them. Um, no, I think that's with, an excellent point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah as, as we like to say here, do your research. And when we say do your research, look at reputable sources and articles and citations. Yeah. Cause some things can put like things like, you know, um, Know, like natural or or even the word organic on a label and if it doesn't have the actual like fda um little seal like or whatever the symbol is like it's mm -hmm. not actually 100 percent organic yeah um it's greenwashing scam yeah. don't fall for it kids and if you do though that's okay because we all we've all done it, it. <laughs> we've all done we've it. All been there. honestly we still do it let's be real <laughs> and um, just for anyone out there who doesn't know what greenwashing is, it means when a product conveys false impression or misleading information about how the company's products are more environment environmentally friendly, um, when in actuality they're not, um, because a lot of companies have picked up on the fact that people want more um, eco-friendly or sustainable products, so they try to make it look like theirs are when in actuality they're not. So, For example, like... Like Kenzie mentioned, there are only a few crops in the United States that are actually grown as GMOs. Yeah, and then you um, always so see like no see GMOs. No GMOs. Oh, on, you're like, so right. <laughs> on something that a GMO doesn't even exist for. Yep. 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 Ridiculous. That's a great example. Um, before I go into the two little points I had here, um, I do want to loop back really quick to the eating less meat um, <laughs> because I did a whole of research thesis about this in college um basically it was actually for um an ethics and morals class oh. um it was like part of the requirements for the college in general it wasn't part of my major or anything but I had to take a philosophy class basically um and it was actually one of the my favorite classes I ever took at FNM but um basically in the end we had to present um a, an argument for a moral like question of um you know like a decision that someone can make and mine was going vegetarian or vegan um and it was something that we actually had to implement in our own lives like whatever you were arguing arguing for so I was actually vegetarian for most of college oh wow um yeah I 
I really want to go back, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's been like on and off for me. Um, but anyway, when I did this project, I learned a lot about, um, not like we kind of know the environmental impacts of animal agriculture. Um, basically, uh, the amount of land that is used um, for raising animals for agricultural purposes um, has really detrimental effects on the environment as far as destroying natural habitats, um, destroying a lot of plants that would reduce our carbon emissions. So it raises carbon emissions a lot. Um, and just water usage. water usage. Oh my gosh, so much water usage. And then um, even displacing people indigenous people specifically um, is a big issue as far as animal agriculture. Um, but all that aside, um, one of the biggest moral arguments that I had, or in this research for class, it's very hard to get people to sometimes relate to um, environmental issues or to animal rights issues, because there's also a lot of animal rights issues involved in the animal agriculture industry, which I could go off for a long time about, so I won't. Um, but it's easier to get people to care about other people, like think people that are like you or that you can relate to. Um, and one of my big arguments is a lot of these animal agricultural facilities or factories or um, what have you, farms, um, the pollution created by animal product and animal waste um, impacts like lower income communities drastically more than any other in this country. Um, so much so that it is like, we're talking like a lot of cancer causing pollution. Um, and there were a lot of interviews that I looked into and read articles um, of families that literally live next to these sorts of, um, you know, uh, places that experience firsthand, like the runoff into their own backyard. Um, is pretty detrimental to their health. Um, so even like we mentioned way, way, way back in the beginning that sustainable agriculture not only is beneficial for providing enough food for the community and ensuring that we are also aiding the environment, um, but also aiding the community. Um, so, well, you know, um, when we're thinking about eating sustainably and eating locally, you know, by all means, if you eat meat, that's great. Just look for your local sources, um, if you can. Uh, but also thinking about just that practice or industry in general can have a lot of impacts aside from just like where you buy it from or where it's coming from, if that makes sense. Am I making sense? No, no, it makes excellent sense. <laughs> I like wish I want to like pull up my thesis because it was written so much more beautifully than this, but it just was a oh. thought that occurred to me. I would, I would um, like to rescind my previous statement and just say, eat less. Oh, no, well, <laughs> you, you did say that. <laughs> well, I think, I think the point is here, do what you're able to. There you um, go. If you're, and this is all. Emily in, always I mean, balancing us out. I love it. Well, it's just like, you know, the climate is changing, doom and gloom. Oh my God, the world's going to end. Like, yes, but also, you know, every plastic bag that you don't use, you're saving a sea turtle. Every hamburger you don't eat. That's helping the earth a little bit. Every time you choose the local strawberries, you're helping the earth a little bit. Man. It's more of a sum of parts. It's not, it's again, it's been said before, and I'm not the first person to say this, but it's not everybody doing everything perfectly. 
it's everybody trying to do what they can. Right. There you go. There you go. That's a great way to put it. You absolutely right. So, you know, meatless, if you're able to, Sundays. there you, you go. <laughs> great story. Exactly. exactly. You know, not everybody needs to go vegan tomorrow and not everybody is able to go vegan tomorrow and not everybody is able to do insert every environmental task here, but do what you can and we will make the world a little bit better of a place. That being said, we do want to go after the head honchos that are truly the ones wrecking <laughs> this earth. Truly. Um, and one of the big things that we can uh, do is support federal farm and food programs that support and incentivize farmers to use sustainable practices. Um, so that benefits the environment as well as the farmers themselves. Um, because, you know, if you're trying to just make a profit, feed your family, you're not necessarily going to choose the sustainable choice um, in that moment, which is understandable in those circumstances. So help make it, you know, incentivize it and support those decisions made by those farmers. Um, which also, as we've said a billion times, you know, you, you also can vote with your money. So buying those sorts of products, if you're able, um, is great. And then you can also look into organizations like the National Sustainable Agricultural Coalition, or NSAC for short, um, which is, I've looked at their website a lot. It's really awesome. It's an alliance of grassroots organizations that advocate for federal policy reform um, to advance the sustainability of agriculture, food systems, natural resources, and rural communities. Um, so they do a lot of that work um, as far as policy change, which is awesome. We love it. Um, all right. So we'll wrap it up now. Um, the short of all of this is to say, pay attention to what you eat and where it comes from. Um, simply knowing where your food has come from, where it's been, um, is the first step in all of this. Um, like we just mentioned, not everybody's going to be perfect right away, um, but every little bit you do helps. And like Katie just said, Vote with your money, kids. Um, with that, that's really all we've got about uh, sustainable agriculture today. If you guys have more questions about this, feel free to send us a DM on Instagram or an email at conservationqueenspodcast at gmail. Um, we are more than willing to answer any questions that you have. We know that this is a very complex topic and we barely scratch the surface, but um, we're willing to answer any questions you might have. Um, and then, of course, you know, uh, if you would like to become a Patreon and get a shout out next episode or perhaps give us a idea for a future episode, join us on Patreon. You can find us there at Conservation Queens Podcast. Um, all of our social media, you've heard it a million times, but we're at Conservation Queens Podcast everywhere. And thank you so much for joining us this week. Get out there and stay sustainable. Bye. 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 <laughs>